Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Science of D&D podcast. I'm Justin Frazee. And I'm Dr. Betsy Schock. And today we're going to be talking about all types of damage. And then later, we're going to talk about resting and healing, how that could be working in our fantasy world. So I can go and list the types of damage. I categorize them as the physical kind, bludging, slashing, piercing, and then there's magic. And you can get some of these effects through non-magical means, but more often than not, it's spell effects. So those are acid, cold, fire, force, lightning, necrotic, poison, psychic, radiant, and thunder. I just finished playing a multi-class barbarian sorcerer, which is an interesting combination. And it's very satisfying to roll all those D6s for Fireball. Classic. I think Fireball is a great example because it brings up, if you're taking that much damage, why isn't there permanent scarring, right? Yeah. Or like maybe even another question is those sorts of spells ignite things that aren't held or worn. So why is it limited to things that aren't held or worn, do you think? Good question, because you would imagine if you are wearing clothes, those should also be ignited. Mm -hmm. Um, So either there's something inherently different about the clothes and in the world that makes them non-flammable, or there's something very specific about how the spell works and what it's able to target. The way I've always thought of it, it's that combat is actually more complicated than it's presented. It's just never said this way. So the way I imagine it is those spells actually, they would ignite things on those people, but they are like actively putting it out. So it's not actually spreading. And I think that's similar to how... AC works. We had a session last week where I was DMing and one of our players was trying to hit this massive Yeti with a vial of acid and he was just trying to smash it against it and he, you know, he rolled and he missed, you know, he didn't hit the AC and he's like, why can't I do this? I'm a trained fighter. This thing is huge. Why can't I just hit it? And I thought that was a really good question because it makes sense. If this was just a thing that's just standing there and you're just trying to hit it and it's huge, why can't you just hit it? But implied in the combat is this resistance that you don't explicitly see because it's turn-based, but you could imagine this thing is fighting back, right? It is trying to not get hit. It's trying to hit you. It's, It's pushing back. So not hitting doesn't always mean that you just whiff it, right? You miss. And I think this this is another thing I want to bring up was like armor. I think it's reasonable to assume that when you roll against AC and you get over it, you can say, oh, you hit a vulnerability in the armor, a vulnerability in the person. You had the desired effect. And if you roll below it, it isn't necessarily that you just completely whiffed. It's they deflected your blade it hit their armor and was repelled, or you hit them in a place that did maybe some damage, but it was negligible. It was just a scratch or whatever. Are there any types of armor in D&D that you feel don't behave the same way that they would in our world? So, for example, leather armor, your base is 11 plus your dex, versus when you go up to chainmail, it's 13 
plus your dex modifier. Right. Um, do you feel like that makes sense or is leather being what well, maybe OP compared to what we'd see in our world? And if that's the case, do we have a scientific explanation for that? Is leather, are the amylides just thicker and tougher? Are they just better at manufacturing leather? So there are historical leather armor. It's not the leather that you see in purses or unclothing, right? It's not thin. It is thick. It is boiled to harden it, created specifically to be tough. And it is quite tough. You get pieces that are thick enough that they will act similar to something like chainmail. Obviously, chainmail is better, and I think it makes sense that the AC is higher. But it is it is a material that's specifically crafted to be armor. It's not just a leather jacket, right? And done effectively can do a great job. And actually, while we're talking about that, I do want to talk about padded, which is something similar, to, I would assume, to a gambeson. And it's actually surprisingly more effective than you would think. You take something like a gambeson, or even if you wore heavy clothing, like a winter coat, and you try to cut it with a knife, you won't get through it. It's actually more resistant to getting cut than you would think. It's not like you see in movies, you know, someone cuts through someone wearing armor, just like, you know, cuts right through them. That's not really the way that things work like swords or weapons, that sort of thing, don't cut through things as easily as you would think. And that's why different weapons were invented to get through different types of armor. Like that's why you get war hammers or, you know, different halberds or things to try to get through more advanced armor. And I, I think I think that 5e does a decent job in simplifying and having a diversity in armor that makes sense in a, in a way that is f pretty realistic. So we've been talking a lot um, about like armor and means of protecting ourselves against damage, but let's talk about the stabby stab, slashy slash, yes. uh, get to the blood and gore. So it's interesting because most of the time when you're playing, you don't, there's no real mechanical reason to differentiate between bludgeoning, piercing, slashing damage. Sure. But if you think about in real life, they're getting slashed is very different than getting pierced. Yes. Perhaps you have a preference for one or the other. <laughs> uh, if I had to choose, I would choose being pierced because there are actual historical accounts of people being run through with a sword and surviving. And even the two people that are doing running both of themselves through with swords and then both of them surviving. So you have to hit a vital organ as opposed to something like slashing if you just, you know, cut someone open pretty badly, they're going to bleed out. It's pretty easy to bleed out. Well, we don't see that happening in D&D. &D. Right. So what does that tell us? What can we speculate? I think we know, like on us, for example, where maybe some vital blood vessels would be. So one possibility is that either these vital arteries are deeper or there are just not in general vital arteries present in, you know, any sort of humanoid in D&D. So that's why you're not getting this gushing of damage. We see with some magic things where on the next turn, you're also expected to take a D4 of damage, which would be representative of this continual gushing out of blood and loss of hit points. I was also thinking perhaps clotting works differently. Usually you get a scrape and sometimes, you know, it takes a while to stop the bleeding the deeper it is. 
you know, the more pressure you have to put it on, elevate and stuff. But if you're able to clot faster, then slashing damage isn't going to have those turn lasting effects. And maybe that ties into healing, which we'll go into a little more deeply later. But people are just more resilient in the world where they they resist bleeding out. And then bludgeoning is a little bit weird because you don't really necessarily expect to draw blood with bludgeoning. I just kind of view that more as you're increasing the likelihood of breaking bones. But that really never comes into play mechanically in D&D. Yeah. In the real world, bludgeoning would mean concussions, broken bones, ruptured internal organs. Yeah. In D&D, everything is just health, right? So you just, you are perfectly capable of continuing on at one health point as you were at 100. But once you get one more damage, you are knocked out and dying. Yeah. In the real world, you can go into shock where you don't realize the amount of damage you've taken. And you, you continue on, you think you're fine until... That wears off. It's either shock or adrenaline, you know, that sort of right, thing. Right, like you, fight or flight kicks in. Yeah. And, and you don't realize that you're as hurt as you think until later. You're like, wow, no, I'm actually quite hurt. I've actually been stabbed and didn't realize. I think that those systems in the body are heightened in the DMD world. Sure. You're taking all this damage. You are naturally more capable of resisting that damage of bleeding or whatnot. And your body pushes you on, even though you've taken that much damage. Which, now that I think about it, we should talk about what does increasing health mean when you level up? Or I was even thinking about that possibly in the context of like temporary hit points as well. And my first thought with that was related to adrenaline. A lot of your body's fight or flight's kicking in and giving you this general surge. But that's obviously different than talking about increasing your HP. I think it's more reasonable to assume that it's not just you can take more damage where if you were level one, you got an axe to the face and you were dead. At level 20, you can take a thousand axes to the faces and you're not dead, right? I don't think that's necessarily what the case is. I would think that instead it's you becoming more capable and there are attacks incoming and they're hitting you, but they're having less effect on you than they used to. So that makes sense. We know that your HP is directly related to your constitution modifier. When we think about constitution, it's your robustness, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So you are becoming more robust, whether that's your just ability to take a hit. I'm sure first time boxer steps into the ring, they're not going to be as able to take a hit. Right. But as you become trained more and become more skilled, you're able to take more. So some is more of a mental thing, right? Than yeah. A physical well, thing. There, I mean, there is there, there's two parts. So in real world fighting, your body does adapt, right? Your bones become more dense. You develop calluses, things like that, where your body becomes more resilient, but it is more about skill and determination and adaptation where you learn how to defend yourself better. So a boxer is getting punched in the ring, but those punches are glancing blows. They're not hitting them directly. If they're, they're fighting a similar skilled opponent as when they begin, obviously they can still get, you know, one punch knocked out, but that's the real world. This is the fantasy world. It's, it's more dramatic than that. I think that's what I would go with that health isn't necessarily your body just becoming more resilient to damage. It is you as a character are 
developing better, to fight better, to take lesser hits. And there is a little bit of development of your body hardening uh, to take damage. So we've, to this point, been mainly focusing on the physical types of damage. So there's all the types of damage that are associated with magic. And I think for several of these, like, we don't really need to go deep into conversation because it's not that hard to imagine, like, how fire damage would work. Like, you guys maybe have know what it's like to get burned if you've ever, like, stuck your finger through a candle. Hopefully nothing worse than that. But um, cold damage, ice and salt trick. Has anyone done that? That kind of sucks. You use sub-zero temperatures at work. Yeah, so most of our, like, more sensitive samples are kept in a freezer that's minus 80 degrees Celsius. So what does that do on a cellular level? I mean, we know our cells have a lot of water in them. Freezing causes expansion of water. It just breaks everything down. And then, yeah, would in theory break everything down. Maybe some cell types are a little bit more resilient to that. I mean, our skin in general is pretty tough. You can imagine getting hit with a wave of cold on your body being not super great. I interrupted you. You were going somewhere with types of damage. Right. So I think we can pretty easily imagine acid, cold, fire, lightning. I mean, hopefully no one's experienced that. Poison. Those are all kind of damages that are like pretty common or easy to imagine how those would work in a fantasy world because we've seen them in our world. Mm -hmm. But they're Our other ones. So force damage. I didn't know until now, which I just looked up, but it is defined this way. Force is pure magical energy focused into a damaging form. And I've always thought of it before without really thinking about it as a blast wave. Right. But I guess it's not. It's so it's almost like a conversion of energy. Yeah, Eldritch Blast does force damage, and I never think of that as an explosion, basically. I always think of something like Thunder Wave as that, but it's thunder damage. So honestly, the force that I'm thinking of is thunder damage, which thunder damage would just be an expansion of air, a blast wave, that sort of thing. But that kind of makes sense when you start thinking about thunder is sound, is how they're representing it, versus what they're describing here, force damage, is something quite different. It is pure magical energy. What does that even mean? So what is energy? <laughs> what is magical energy <laughs> more? And it's not something like bludgeoning damage because it's not just like the force you hit with the ground with that sort of thing because that's specifically defined as bludgeoning damage. All right. So spells that deal force damage. We have Banishing Smite, Bigby's Hand, Disintegrate, Eldritch Blast, Magic Missile, Morting Kynan's Sword. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Spiritual Weapon and Teleportation. So there's actually a pretty wide range of spells going from cantrips to, I think, Disintegrate is a level six or seven spell. So pretty wide range, at least in terms of that. Yeah, most of those spells aren't related at all that I think of. I don't think of Banishing Smite. Eldritch Blast, Magic Missile, and Spiritual Weapon as doing the same thing. It almost seems like this is like a garbage, (laughs) just like the garbage thing. I was like, ah, we couldn't think of anything, so we just put it in here. Maybe Force is a mix of all the other elements. 
if it's just raw magical energy, then maybe it contains a little bit of everything else. Alternately, when we think of energy, my brain goes back to my thermodynamics and kinetics class that I took in college, thinking about how energy can be converted. Energy and enthalpy are related through the Maxwell equations. And so maybe it's transferring that energy to different states, essentially. As a result of that, you're going to be producing things like heat and stuff, which maybe you can imagine that being produced from Eldred's blast or something to that degree. Yeah, I could buy that. So we talked about necrotic damage in our magic episode. I really liked the idea that necrotic damage is radiation. Yeah, it has to be something that's going to have a quick effect, right? And radiation is something that's going to wreak havoc on your cells pretty quickly and pretty severely. Versus a lot of times we think about gangrene as related to necrotic damage in our world. And that's, you know, just an infection that's like festered a while and gotten really gross and taken time to see that effect. And that's not how necrotic damage works in D&D. It's interesting thinking about radiation because that's the same root word as radiant damage. And thinking about it now, it might make sense that necrotic is in the same family as radiant damage. Although you always think of necrotic as the evil thing and radiant as the good thing. But maybe they're the different sides of the same coin. Yeah. So radiant damage itself, how is that defined in the player's handbook? Radiant damage sears the flesh like fire and overloads the spirit with power. Sounds very divine. It's obviously different because it's talking about overloading the spirit, which is a, at least in d &E, we think there's probably some sort of physical component to spirit, but is in general like a less physical and tangible thing. So how do you get damage that is capable of doing that? You get a god to do it. <laughs> I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense that there could be something that reaches across planes to touch more than just your physical elements, but hits you in the, the soul. We didn't actually read the definition of necrotic damage. Let's look that up. So it says necrotic damage dealt by certain undead and a spell class such as till touch withers matter and even the soul. So I definitely think there is a link with radiant damage or you're justified in wanting to put them in Although not the same the, category. The one I originally was thinking. Yeah. I was thinking the physical side of things where you could think of radiation as withering things. Radiant damage burns things, but they both touch the soul. So both of them have this extra material effect. So we've hit on damage that affects the physical and two types that seem to be expecting the spiritual. But then there's also mental damage or affects the mind, which puts us in the category of psychic damage. And what does that mean? Yeah, the description of that is pretty vague. Mental abilities such as a psionic blast deal psychic damage. So spells that include that type of damage are Dissonant Whispers, Phantasmal Force, Phantasmal Killer, Staggering Smite, Vicious Mockery, Weird, and Wrathful Smite. 
ones I'm the most familiar with are dissonant whispers and vicious mockery. So vicious mockery, you pretty much just insult someone and leave them with psychic damage. So you can imagine how a well-placed insult could have a lasting impact on someone. But you almost need to know a person really well to deal something like that. And obviously, this is just a bar drunk in a tavern who's like <laughs> spitting out vicious mockery. That makes me wonder, is it doing something actually chemically, physically to the mind? Yeah, and we kind of were talking about other types of magic that may potentially affect the mind itself. Maybe it's affecting like dopamine or something like that. Things that we typically associate with depression and kind of elevating those levels. Yeah, neural networks themselves are like really complex. But one thing is they... The more they are used, the more those neural networks are established and reinforced. You know, the idea of muscle memory is like the more and more you do something, the easier it be is because those connections between those neurons become more established so things can fire more quickly and efficiently. So if we're thinking in terms of negative mental damage, maybe it's reinforcing neural networks that are associated with negative thoughts. I like that a lot. So we've been talking a lot about how to kill a character, right? Right. <laughs> Which at least we kill lots of enemies, but usually the people in your party are pretty safe. So why is that? And I think a lot of it has to do with how healing and how rest mechanics work in D&D. There are long rest and short rest, um, and you are able to recover health during both of those. Right. Which in the real world, healing takes time. A lot of time. You would think... If you are taking to the point where you are one HP, you're going to be in the ICU for a couple days and if then someone... in the hospital a lot longer after <laughs> that, not just eight hours and ready to go kill something else. If you if someone stabbed you enough where you were on the verge of death, it's going to take more than a nap to get back up. Yeah, exactly. So I think what this tells us is there is something very inherently different about the biology associated with healing and rest and recovery and regaining HP. Thinking about our body's wound healing responses, there are an inflammatory response. This is kind of one of the first things that happened. Blood rushes to the affected area. Yeah, exactly. So you're getting a lot of cytokines that are infiltrating the area, neutrophils and macrophages, so cell types that are going to contribute to preventing insortive infection that may be happening. You're also going to get what's known as the fibroblastic phase. And this is where you're going to get a lot of cell proliferation and tissue remodeling happening. And then final remodeling phase. So you can kind of think of this on a simple version as your scab is finally healing over. And so this is going to involve a lot of tissue remodeling. So cells moving, cells producing new cells. If we would break it down into simple terms, when you're injured, your body responds by, let's say, something like a cut. It tries to stop the bleeding, then it covers the wound and rebuilds the structures. Yeah, and there will also be cells that are sent there to prevent you from getting an infection. So right. macrophages are coming in order to deal with any sort of like debris or anything like that. So this is something in general happens pretty quickly most of the time. You think like a minor scrater per cup, you can have... It clotted, you know, within minutes and then healed up maybe in like a week or so. But in D&D &D time, that seems a little bit too slow. 
So what are some things that maybe can be happening to make that go faster? More blood. (laughs) More blood. I think it's important to think about short and long rests as more than just taking a nap, getting a bite to eat. They're not the same. They still have wounds, but they've taken the steps necessarily to prevent those wounds from becoming more major. And then on top of that, their bodies respond in a different way. And so how would you speculate that would happen? Yeah, so I think it's definitely tempting to throw stem cells into the mix, right? We would have to assume that when you have what I'm going to say is extreme healing capabilities, that there must be stem cells that work more efficiently. So a basic definition of a stem cell is a cell that has the ability to self-renew, so make more of itself, and then also give rise to other cell types. And basically, depending on how what level of stemness it has, a true pluripotent stem cell is going to be able to give rise to all cell types in your body. But we don't really have any true pluripotent stem cells left, but we may have we have progenitor cells for specific for like different subtypes of neurons. But maybe in D&D, there are true pluripotent stem cells. So that eliminates the need to if you have a pool of them, you don't really need to super self-replicate. You can just send them and they can differentiate quicker into your tissue or perhaps the resident stem cells that they have are able to make more copies of themselves quickly. So we have this idea of DNA replications happening faster, cell division is happening faster, and then differentiation to those terminal cell types is able to happen faster. So basically the the clock of the cells is very different. It can work on a faster level. Another thing might be that somehow platelets work together in a way that makes them more resilient where your wounds, while maybe not completely healed, are at a point where they're not going to re-tear and cause additional bleeding. So the platelets are creating a structure that is more robust, or you can like even think contributing to that. So there's a lot of extracellular matrix uh, that gets laid down as part of the remodeling process. Fibroblast, things to that degree, collagens. So maybe they have a superstructure, right? Some sort of filament that we don't have as humans. That's just far more robust and able to provide more structural integrity. That's going to kind of serve two purposes. It's going to make it so that's doesn't rip open and you bleed out again. But this could also explain maybe why slashing damage and stuff really doesn't do as much as you, the cells are inherently more robust Mm -hmm. um, because of this mystery extracellular matrix protein. So would your theory also cover things like the other types of damage? How would you explain healing from something like necrotic damage? Yeah, so necrotic damage... I imagine that is going to be triggering massive amounts of cell death. Basically, to compensate for that, you're just going to need to make more cells that cover that area faster. So I think that would play into just having very robust and efficient stem cells. I don't know if necessarily having a more robust extracellular matrix would help with that. But you can also think about things like cells need to move to cover the areas. Maybe they have a higher propensity to migrate. It also, no matter what system you choose, if it's going to have more effect, it means it's consuming more energy, right? Sure. Yeah, that 
That makes sense. I guess I don't always think about ATP with these things, but yeah. Uh, it just made me think about what if what if it just means that bodies in the in D and D world when they go to heal are more efficient at converting food into energy, which go down the line and have a better effect at healing you. So perhaps part of a short rest, a long rest, is just eating a lot. That could be a fun mechanic to play with is if you took damage, maybe you you consume an additional ration or whatever, and your body consumes that, converts it, and helps you justify healing. Maybe good berries are just like super packed, oh. like tiny things that get broken down to a bunch of ATP very quickly. So very efficient. That's why they're so good. <laughs> there is something I do want to mention, which is an optional rule in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which is lingering injuries. And I don't see it used much. We use a variation of it in the game that I run. But it is an indication that you can take damage that isn't healed over a long rest. Some examples are losing an eye, losing a foot, having a limp, internal injuries, a festering wound. So I think this indicates that, yes, bodies are considerably more efficient at healing and and people are very good at patching themselves up but there are things that can affect you and perhaps the the stories we play are the equivalent of our heroic tales where we kind of look over those those major injuries but it's one of the reasons i do like including those in the game because i like thinking of about the idea that there can be long-term ramifications to combat. A character that has lost an eye, not in their backstory, but while they're playing, means that they have this lasting effect on them, this, this lasting mark that is a great story to tell. Yeah, and I think with that, if we like come thinking about this scientifically, there there is a very big difference between wound healing and regeneration. And one thing we know, at least from our world, is that as you kind of climb the evolutionary scale and get to mammals, like the ability to regenerate greatly goes down. I and mean, I think that would be like consistent, at least with being able to have those lingering effects in a fantasy world is regeneration is a very scarce feature. So needless to say, no matter how much you rest in D&D, you're probably not going to be able to naturally regrow an arm. Although there are some spells, I think, that can give you back body parts, right? Regeneration. Regeneration. So there is regeneration magic. And maybe like we could speculate that is able to take those cells back to a more embryonic state and give them these signaling cues that they would need to be able to start to regenerate. And once that process has started, its development itself is very robust. And so it's able to like see it through to the end, which I think is cool. I think it would be cool thinking about this in the in the scope of our game, where there has been some long-term lingering injuries. Most of the time, a regenerate spell is instantaneous. But I think it would be neater if it was perhaps a little more common to get a regenerate, but it would take time for your body to form those things again. Yeah, so taking those cells back to a more stem cell state, more true to what you would see during embryonic development, and then regrowing that from the ground up. So that may mean um, you, <laughs> you have, have to remake your bone, basically. 
Um, if you're losing a limb, you have to establish digit identity. Which side is your thumb? Which side is your pinky? If it's backwards, you're going to have a hand facing the wrong way. So maybe it takes a year for your arm to grow back. Maybe. Although you can make an arm in about four days in a mouse, something pretty rudimentary. But that's pretty small. That's pretty small. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have an idea of what we should talk about next, you can send an email to scienceofdd at gmail.com. And I hope you tune in next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. 